0: And if you would, you can take your copy of God's Word now and open to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Our passage today ties directly to what we saw last time in the dialogue between John the Baptist and his disciples. John said, I must decrease, or rather he must increase, I must decrease. And verses 31 to 36 now explain why that is. Why is it? That Jesus must increase. And so in all of our time this morning, we are going to meditate on, dwell upon, why it is that Jesus must increase. What is it that makes Jesus greater than the one whom Jesus said that among those born of women was the greatest? Well, our passage is going to answer that. John chapter 3 Look at it with me. Verse 31 and following. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You'll remember from our time last week that there was a period where the ministries of Jesus and John overlapped. Jesus had taken his ministry into the rural regions of Judea after being in Jerusalem for the feast, and then John humbly moved his ministry north into the region of Samaria and began to function as a forerunner there in that place. And in the process, Jesus was increasing in popularity. One of the major things that distinguished Jesus from John is that Jesus performed many miracles. He had a, a ministry where he was performing many signs. John the Baptist didn't come in that way, didn't come performing signs, and so they were both preaching the same message, although John was obviously pointing to Christ as Messiah, both of them calling for repentance, and yet Jesus was performing many miracles and was increasing in popularity. And this resulted in a debate among John's disciples. They didn't like that their mentor was decreasing. And so they came to him in verse 26 and complained, saying, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Ministry jealousy. They don't even refer to Jesus by name here. And they exaggerate when they say that all are coming to him. And John, in gentleness, responds to his jealous disciples in verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Which is to say that John's disciples were out of touch What was taking place in the increase of Jesus and the decrease of John was in accord with heaven. And far from John sharing their jealousy, he was full of joy. He was just the friend of the bridegroom. His whole purpose was to bring the bride to the bridegroom, and now that he had heard the bridegroom's voice, he greatly rejoiced. Because, verse 30, as we've seen, he must increase and I must decrease. Like the luminaries above, John was a star. And as the sun rises, what happens to the stars? They fade away. away. And time had come for God the sun to shine. Now, as I said, verses 31 to 36 explain... Why? Why it is that Jesus must increase. And many believe these verses capture the words of John the Baptist. That John the Baptist, in these verses, 31 to 36, continues to speak to his disciples. But like in verses 16 to 21, I tend to think these words are those of the Apostle John. That the Apostle John is the one that here takes up the pen, as it were, and begins to unpack why it is that Jesus must increase. But either way, it doesn't much matter because this is the inspired Word of God. And so primarily, it is the Word of God. He is the ultimate author of Scripture. And so the question we want to pose to ourselves today is why must Jesus increase? And let me give you five reasons. Five reasons why Jesus must increase. And if you're taking notes, the first is this, because he is superior Because he is superior. And this comes out in verse 31. Look at it. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now that asserts a sharp contrast. And the contrast is between Jesus and John the Baptist, although there's a sense in which John the Baptist represents all of humanity. And there are three things that are said about John he is of the earth, he is from the earth, and he speaks of the earth. And if you miss this, don't worry about it, but the same Greek preposition is used all three times. In those statements, the the preposition is of, from, and of. John is of the earth, from the earth, and speaks of the earth. The same Greek preposition, ek, all the way throughout. And I'm going to flesh out the nuance of each one, but I wish the translators in the New American Standard Bible had done it like this. Flip the first two. So it would be from the earth, of the earth and speaks of the earth in fact if you have an esv it essentially does that only it seeks to kind of bring out the nuance it says he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthy way but i'm going to stick to the nasb the first statement about john there then is that john is of the earth and this speaks to origin he originates from the earth. He is from below, which doesn't speak anything of his sinfulness. It merely highlights his finitude, his, his creatureliness. He is limited. He has limitations. John is of the earth and therefore is a finite creature. The second statement there is that he is from the earth. Now this speaks to kind. John belongs to the earthly realm. He belongs to the realm below. He is part of humanity. He is inferior, obviously, then to the one who is from above. The third is that he speaks of the earth, or as the ESV says, in an earthy way. The, The CSB says in earthly terms, which is to say that when he speaks, he doesn't do so as one from the realm above. He can't speak about heaven with firsthand experiential knowledge. He can only speak that which has been revealed to him and so the cumulative force of these three statements highlights John's finitude, his limitations, he's of the earth, his origin is there, he's from the earth, he belongs to the earth, and he speaks of the earth. That is, he, he speaks as one who must be revealed certain things in order to speak on behalf of God. Now that's in contrast to he who comes from above. Look at the first Part of the verse there, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all, which conveys what? He's superior. Why? Because he originates from above. He belongs to the realm above. He speaks as one from that realm, which doesn't mean that he doesn't also belong to humanity. He did take upon himself human flesh, but nevertheless, his origin is in heaven, which ties nicely to the statement back in verse 13 of this chapter where it says, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Which is to say that no one has ascended into heaven so as to bring heaven down, but the son of man who comes from heaven, he has done so. He has brought heaven down, brought the revelation of God to earth where he can speak, as we'll see in a moment, with firsthand experiential knowledge of the realm above. And by the way, this is what makes Jesus distinct from every other so-called religious figure, like Muhammad, for example, Jesus is the only one who originates in heaven. He is the only one by way of his first hand experiential knowledge can speak of the realm above. He knows God intimately because he is God the Son. He is eternal, uncreated, and co-equally God with the Father. As we know from the beginning of this book, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus plainly states his heavenly origin. Look at John 8, 42 for a moment. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he originates from heaven. So obviously at the beginning of the book you have the apostle John's prophetic testimony, but Jesus actually claims himself to be from above. John 8:42, Jesus said to them, "If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me." No one else can make that claim. No one else can claim that they are from God and that God has sent them. Yes, there's a sense in which John the Baptist was sent by God as a prophet, but this is a totally different thing because Jesus actually comes from the realm above and enters into his creation, his, his, his created order, and joins humanity as the God-man. Look at John 16.28, similar statement. In John 16, 28, Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And then note this, I am leaving the world again and going to the Father, going back to where he belongs. Jesus descended from heaven, fulfilled his his mission upon earth, and then ascended back to heavenly glory. And so Jesus is superior, far superior to John the Baptist. And this is the same point made by the author of Hebrews. He's superior to the angels since they came into being through him. He's superior to Moses since like John, Moses is of the earth, from the earth, and speaks of the earth. He's superior to every preceding priesthood because he's done what no other priest could, having died once for sin once for all, and then took his seat at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus must increase because he is superior to all. In fact, this is underscored at the end of verse 31, where it says, He who comes from heaven is above all. There is no one above him. He holds the position of highest place. And since he originates from heaven, he speaks with firsthand knowledge. And so if you're taking notes, the second reason Jesus must increase is because he knows firsthand. Because he knows firsthand. And you're going to see this in verse 32. It says, What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Since Jesus is from heaven, he is supremely fit to speak about heaven. And this is true on account of what he has seen. He was with the Father before the world began. Listen to John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Thus he has seen the Father. Listen, John 6.46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. And because Jesus has seen the Father, he has first-hand knowledge and is able to explain him. John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus is supremely fit to exegete the Father to us. Listen to John eight thirty eight. I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. And so Jesus has firsthand knowledge and can speak on the basis of what he has seen. But it's also true that he can speak with firsthand knowledge on account of what he has heard. For example, he speaks what he hears. Listen to John eight twenty six. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. Jesus hears from the Father and then speaks to the world. He speaks what he's taught. Two verses later, John 8, 28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. The Father has taught the Son, and the Son then speaks those things that He's been taught. Look at John 12, 49 and 50. This highlights that Jesus speaks what He's told to speak. John 12, 49, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. Jesus is supremely fit to reveal the Father describe heaven, talk about the the realm above. And that's in contrast to John the Baptist, who didn't have firsthand experiential knowledge. He spoke entirely from faith on the basis of what was revealed to him. And as we'll see, he could only speak in accord with the measure of the Spirit he had received. So why must Jesus increase? One, because he's superior. He's from above. That's where he originates from. Two, because he knows firsthand. Therefore, he can speak authoritatively about God, about heaven, about salvation, the world to come. And if you're taking notes, three, because he has received divine testimony, because he has received divine testimony. Now, notice the statement at the end of verse 32. It says there, and no one receives his testimony, which was generally the case. Generally, his testimony was rejected. It seemed as though so few were actually receiving him. And so that was generally the case, but it wasn't always the case. Look at verse 33. He who has received this testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. There were some that did receive his testimony. John the Apostle, for example, would have been one. And so what does it mean to set one's seal to the reality that God is true? What does it mean to set one's seal? Well, it's to certify or authenticate that something is true. In the ancient world, important documents would be certified with a signet ring. And on that ring would be a person's distinctive mark. And that ring would be pressed into hot wax and would leave a mark in the wax that would then authenticate and certify that document. And so by receiving the testimony of Christ, you're certifying that God is true. You're in a sense taking the the mark, your own distinctive mark on your own signet ring and you're pressing it into the, the wax and certifying that yes, God is true. And of course, either way, whether you set your seal to God being true or not, God is true. But the point is that God has testified concerning the authenticity of his son and it's upon us to receive that testimony and by receiving that testimony you set your seal to the reality that God is in fact true. Look at John 6:27. We find the same word used in John 6:27 concerning Christ. It says here, "Do not work for the food which perishes. Jesus is now speaking to the masses but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, here it is, for on Him, the Father, God, has set His seal. Even the Father has set His seal that Christ is His Son. The Father has given testimony, has certified that Jesus is The Son of God, the source of eternal life, is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. You say, well, how has he done that? Well, he's done that in the Old Testament. He's done that with John the Baptist. He's done that with the miracles that Jesus performed. He's done that through the testimony of the Father himself when the Father declares from heaven on multiple occasions, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father has certified, has testified, has authenticated that Jesus is his Son. And so, what happens if you reject the Father's testimony? We'll turn to 1 John for a moment because John makes it very explicit. 1 John chapter 5, and we're concerned with verses 9 and 10. First John chapter 5, verse 9 says this, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His son. To reject the testimony of God concerning Christ is to make God a liar. It's to charge God with bearing false witness because he has abundantly testified to who his son is. And God is always true and never a liar. And so making God a liar is a serious charge. And the question is, who else has received testimony like this? Is there anyone else who has received this kind of testimony? You could, you could pose that question within the, the biblical record itself. You could, you could even go beyond the biblical record. You could go to, to the, the, the extra biblical record. You could go to, to the false religions of the world. Has God ever so bountifully, so clearly, so abundantly testified to who his son is. In Christ, hundreds of Old Testament prophecies sends the forerunner like John the Baptist, miracles so numerous that John supposes that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written and multiple proclamations from heaven that Jesus is God's son. Can that be rivaled? Of course it can't. Jesus has received unmatched, unrivaled, unparalleled testimony that he is God's son because there is only one son, and that son is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has received divine testimony. And yet another reason. Why Jesus must increase. Why is it that Jesus must increase? Well, fourth, if you're taking notes, because he has the Spirit without limit. Because he has the Spirit without limit. This comes out in verse 34, which says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now let's focus on the second half of that verse first. It says, Therefore he gives the Spirit without measure. And there's an implied contrast here. John the Baptist had the Spirit. In fact, he was filled with the Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, Luke 1.15. But he was given the Spirit in measure. It was in proportion. And this was true of all the prophets. They had the Spirit in proportion to their ministry. But none of the prophets ever possessed the spirit without measure, without limit. In fact, we can illustrate this in our lives with spiritual gifts. Listen to Ephesians 4, 7 for a moment. It says this, but to each one of us, each one of us in the body of Christ, to each one of us, grace was given, note this, according to the measure of Christ's gift. We've received a a portion. We've received a, a measure of the the Spirit's enabling grace to to, to function in the body with a spiritual gift to the building up of the body. But it's in measure. It's proportionate. The same thing is basically said in Romans 12.3, where it says, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Again, that's in the context of spiritual gifts. We have a measure of faith, of spiritual giftedness to employ in the body of Christ. It's in proportion. There are limits. But Jesus has the Spirit without measure, without limits. He had the Spirit in all his fullness. Even John the Baptist witnessed the the Spirit come down upon him as a dove and remain on him. Jesus was full of the Spirit. And as such, he speaks the words of God. First half of the verse. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Of course, this goes back to what we've already seen. Since he originates in heaven and belongs to the realm above, he has firsthand experiential knowledge. Furthermore, since he doesn't speak on his own initiative, he only speaks what he hears from the Father. And then furthermore, since he is God incarnate, his words are divine and yet still more, he has the spirit without limits, thus he speaks the words of God. And I want you to see the way his words are described. Look at John 6, in verse 63. Jesus describes the essence of his words. John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you our spirit and our life. Life eternal. In fact, look at how Simon Peter responds. The the many have withdrawn from Jesus. The, The teaching in John 6 was too difficult for them. And Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 67 and says, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. His words are spirit and are life, life eternal. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they they sent officers to seize Jesus. We'll see this in John 7. And the officers returned empty-handed, and the, the chief priests and Pharisees say, Why didn't you bring him? And how'd they respond? Never has a man spoken like this. They were shocked. He speaks as one from a different realm, from the realm above. And he did so because he had the Spirit without measure. And because he has the Spirit without measure... When he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he sends the Spirit. He's also fit to baptize with the Spirit in accord with the new covenant. And it's through the new birth that we, his people, are indwelt by the Spirit. Why must Jesus increase? Because he has the Spirit without limit. Without limit. And the fifth reason He must increase is because He has been given all authority. He has been given all authority. Look at verse 35. For the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. That's an amazing statement. The Father loves the Son. And that love is a perfect love. Total, complete love. And... and. It's a love that is, is toward one worthy of that love. The Son is worthy of the Father's love. The Father delights in the Son. The Son delights in the Father. And, and really, when you, when you think about love, that's the kind of love you want to be a part of. I mean, the, the love that exists between the Father and the Son is, is a love that, that you want to be share in. You want to be a part of that kind of love. That would be probably the most precious gift you could ever receive, is to have a share in and to experience the love between the Father and the Son. And here's the thing. If you're in Christ, then you have and you will. Turn to John 17. This comes in our Lord's high priestly prayer. And he, he prays in a way that indicates that we as his people share in the love between the Father and the Son. John 17, verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I made your name known to them And will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The Father loves the Son, and the Father commissioned the Son to come to earth, enter into his creation, to redeem his bride, in order to bring us into this love fellowship between the Father and the Son so that the Father loves us with the same love that he loves the Son. That is amazing. Now, there's a sense in which the appreciation and even the the sense of that reality for us at this time is one that, That grows as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But in eternity, when we're in the presence of God and the Son, there will be an amazing awareness, sense, and experiential knowledge that we share in that perfect love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. And it's, it's out of this love that the Father has given all things into the hand of his Son. I mean, if you had someone in your life that you loved perfectly, totally, and completely, you would give them everything. You would put everything into their hands. You, you would trust them with everything. And the Father has given all things into the Son's hands. For example, he has all authority. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority given to the Son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians two twenty one indicates that Christ has been raised up and seated in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus has the highest place of authority in the in in the universe in existence in fact the next verse indicates that god put all things in subjection under his feet and as such as as one who has all authority, all judgment has been given to him. And you can see this in John five. We've already seen it, but turn there, John 5 verses 22 to 23. says, "For not even the Father gives, or not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son." So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. All judgment has been given into the Son's hand. And as you saw in verse 26, he's also been given the prerogative to give life to whom he wishes. In fact, look back at verse 20. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. This is chapter 5. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The son has authority, all authority. He's been given the, the right of all judgment, and he has the, the, the prerogative to give life to whomever he wishes. He has life in himself. In fact, I love this. Listen to, to Luke 10:22. Jesus says this: "All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Same thing we're seeing. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Then he says this, And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It is the Son's prerogative to not just explain the Father as the one who is supremely fit to do so, but to open the heart and the eyes of a person to understand and know the Father. Everything has been given into the Son's hand. Not only can that not be said about John the Baptist, it cannot be said about anyone. There is only one about whom this can be said, and it is the Son of God, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus must increase. He is far superior to John the Baptist. And so we've seen five reasons why he must increase. Jesus is superior. He has firsthand knowledge, firsthand experiential knowledge of heaven. He's received divine testimony of his identity, unmistakable, unmatched, unrivaled. He has the Spirit without limit, without measure. He has the fullness of the Spirit, and he's been given all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth, all authority to judge, and even the authority to grant life to whomever he wishes. And because all of that is true, Because all of that is true of the Son, He is the exclusive source of eternal life. Eternal life is only available in the Son. It's only by coming to the Son that one can have eternal life. And what you do with Him impacts your eternal destiny. Look at verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes the Son has eternal life. He who trusts the Son. He who who looks to the Son for the forgiveness of sin. Who abandons all self-righteousness. Who recognizes that there's nothing that they can offer to God that would warrant his favor. A realization that that we are all ruined before God. And that apart from the the mercy of God, and apart from God sending a savior, a sin bearer to die in our place, we are utterly finished, eternally finished. And so God, the Father, sends his son into the world to, to enter into his humanity, to take upon himself human flesh and do what we couldn't, to succeed where the first Adam failed and to ultimately fulfill the law and then die upon the cross as a perfect sacrifice for sin where the Father God pours out his righteous indignation on the son where the son swallows it up in full, dies, giving up his last breath, goes, Goes into the grave and on the third day rises again. And just as we've seen, he is raised up and seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Everything has been placed in subjection under his feet, and now he is the one to whom all people everywhere must look as they are called to turn from their sin and believe on him. And really, we see that the gospel call, the the call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ is is a, a command that must be obeyed. Because there are consequences for failing to respond to the call of the gospel. Look again, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. To not obey the son here is to reject him. And of course, if you reject the son, the evidence of your rejection will be seen in a life of disobedience. Which makes it very clear that real saving faith Faith that saves, faith that results in eternal life is going to result in a directional obedience. Not perfect obedience, but an obedience that demonstrates that one has been joined to the Son, that one has the Spirit, has been born from above. But the note of rejection is is clear here. He who does not obey the Son who does not heed the call of the gospel, who does not turn from their sin, who does not believe on Christ. He who rejects the Son makes God a liar, rejects the testimony given concerning his Son. He who rejects, note this, he will not see life, which means they will experience eternal death. And then it says at the end of the verse, but the wrath of God abides on him. the wrath of god god settled displeasure against sin every person on the planet right now outside of christ has the wrath of god abiding on them a down payment on future judgment god settled displeasure with their sin and their sin is an offense against God who is holy and righteous. He is perfect in holiness, perfect in justice. And so every act of sin must be brought to account. You know, this is what we saw already, that the judgment is already in place. Though there's a future consummation of that judgment, a a future fruition of that judgment, There's a real sense in which that judgment has already been laid. John 3 verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Right now, if you are outside of Christ, God's wrath abides on you and that wrath is a wrath that is totally consistent with your life and your deeds of unrighteousness and that wrath will remain on you should you refuse to bow your knee to Jesus Christ and then you will die and enter into eternal wrath where you will be under the full expression of God's judgment and justice for your sin. But he offers deliverance from sin this day. He offers to you salvation in His Son. He has put His Son forward, testified of the authenticity of His Son, certified that His Son is the one whom He sent into the world to save the world. That's what... John 3, 17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And now he's offering his Son to you, and he's offering salvation, and he's saying, Come unto my Son, and believe on him, and you will be forgiven of your sin, clothed in his righteousness, and I will give you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You will have eternal life. The guarantee that you will live should you die, a resurrection unto life, where you will dwell in the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity in the blessed presence of God. It's all offered to you this day, should you turn from your sin and believe on Him. And I would just say this give me one reason why not to. You can't, you'd be a fool. Cling to your sin and enter into eternal judgment. A fool. So believe on him this day and be saved. Jesus is far superior to John the Baptist. John the Baptist's disciples didn't get it. They were concerned about the decrease of their mentor and they failed to understand that this was God's program, heaven's program, that that it was now the sun's time to shine. And that meant all the stars needed to fade away. And that meant John the Baptist needed to fade, fade away as well. He must increase, but we must decrease. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this portion of Scripture. What a meaty, rich portion of Scripture. It's almost as if the entire Gospel of John is right here in these verses. Father, thank You for Your goodness and grace. Thank You for Your Son. Thank You for certifying that He is true. Thank You that He is from above, and so clearly so. Thank You that He had the Spirit, without limit, without measure, that all things have been given into his hands, and that he has testified with firsthand experiential knowledge of who you are, such that he is supremely fit to exegete you to us. And Father, thank you for your word, which is your inspired word, which records his words, his teaching, his preaching, and and even the exposition of Christ in the epistles, we just thank you for the Old Testament, all of it, Father God, we give you praise. Thank you for our great high priest who is at your right hand. Because we have him as our advocate, we have full confidence. It's in his name we pray. Amen.